Am I on the air? I'm on the air. Okay. Um, before we um, look at what we're, our passage this morning, I want to send you a message from uh, Maureen Sharp. Okay. Um, you're probably aware Maureen's not been with us for a number of Sundays, and she's been struggling with breathing difficulties. Um, she's had a lot of tension from the hospital and the doctors, and she's on medication. She's seen some improvement, but she says she hasn't got to walk far before she's totally out of breath. So they're still investigating, it would seem. But she was insistent that I should send you her love. So she sends, receive Maureen's love this morning, will you? Okay, because she's asked me to do that more than once, but now I've got the opportunity. <clears throat> okay, yes, as Steve says, we're um, in Luke's Gospel and we're still in chapter 22. We were in there last week uh, when Steve preached to us and we're still in chapter 22. And the topic, the, the title of my message this morning is Who is the Greatest? So if we have the first slide up, Vicky, please. <clears throat> Okay, you might uh, recognize who that is. Well, Muhammad Ali um, proclaimed to the world that it was him. And perhaps he was the greatest boxer for a time. But all human greatness soon fades and is consigned to history. Today, we're looking at human ambition as exhibited by Jesus' disciples and whether it has a place in the kingdom of God. We pick up the story, the gospel story, straight after what we know as the Lord's Supper, um, which Steve led us through so helpfully last week. It's just before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried and crucified. The disciples have been with him for around three years. They were his closest, intimate friends. They had heard his preaching and teaching, marveled at his miracles and were told things as his special friends that were kept from the crowds. Surely they got the message about the kingdom of God and its values. After all, Jesus was soon to commission them to continue the work he had begun. The responsibility for the proclamation of his message uh, would soon pass to the disciples. And, you know, this message, God said, was for the whole world. And it, the responsibility, the entire responsibility, would rest on their shoulders. There was no other plan. Time left on earth for Jesus to finalize his preparation of them was running out. Now, if I'd been Jesus' mission director, um, knowing that the time was short, I think I would have taken Jesus to one side based on what we're going to look at in a moment and warn him that these guys are not ready. They're really not ready for this momentous task. Jesus had already told them more than once that he was to, about to offer up his life for the sins of the world, which would involve him being tried and brutally crucified as a criminal by the Romans at the insistence of the Jewish authorities. And on the third day, he would raise to life again. You would think that this would have focused their minds on Jesus' eternal purposes. But no, 
they were consumed with the thought of what's in it for me and were squabbling with one another over who was going to get the top jobs in the kingdom they had heard so much about. We will see that Jesus corrects them with what seems to be such patience and gives himself as an example of how they should behave. But was it all a bit too late? From our perspective, knowing all that took place in just a few days and how these men eventually carried the gospel to the Roman world and indeed turned the world upside down, we wonder how they could have behaved in such a crass way. But it's worth considering what factors were affecting their expectations. They were Jews, and through the law and the prophets, they were promised a deliverer. That was so much in their psyche. One who would trample on their enemies and restore their fortunes and sovereignty. And for many, this would have been understood to mean an end to the Roman occupation and a king on David's throne. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just a week before only served to reinforce the belief that the promised kingdom that Jesus spoke about was about to be established on earth. This belief was so firmly embedded in the minds of the disciples that even after Jesus had risen from the dead and met with his disciples and promised them that they would be baptised with the Holy Spirit in just a few days, which would transform them and equip them for the mission ahead. They remarkably still asked Jesus the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So perhaps we should not judge them too harshly and be content that Jesus had not miscalculated regarding their suitability for his ongoing mission, knowing that the Holy Spirit will take over from where he left off. So let's have our first reading then. It's Luke 22, 24 to 30. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? He's saying, isn't this what you would normally expect? It's the one that reclines at table is the greatest. But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, we'll look at Matthew's account now in a moment. Um, if we read Matthew's account, which is placed in our Bibles before the triumphal entry, uh, we get an added dimension to the disciples' audacity. And it is the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who are identified as those who are pushing 
for the top jobs. So, de so determined are they that they get their mother to have a word with Jesus. How unbelievable is that? It's like taking your mother to a job interview, isn't it? And pushing her to the front. <laughs> Incredible. And of course, it didn't go down well with the other disciples. Let's read that, Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able, now talking to the boys I think now, are you able to drink the cup that I am to, to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. In other words, you, my cup of suffering, you will drink it. You will suffer uh, for me. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In, in these two scriptures and others in the other Gospels, in these accounts, Jesus totally overturns the traditional ideas of greatness, which would include things like power, position, prestige, popularity, privilege. I think that's five Ps I managed there. Honor, military might, domination. What he teaches could not be more radical. He says, if you want greatness in my kingdom. It will be marked by service, humility, and sacrifice. I'm so glad that God didn't just give us a rule book and tell us to get on with it. Now, of course, he has given his word contained in what we call the Bible, which reveals who, who God is, what he is like, and what he requires of us. But if we were just left with his commands we might conclude that this is all well and good, but what does it look like in practice? What does it look like in a human being? We need look no further than Jesus, who took on our frail flesh, faced our trials and temptations, yet lived to please his Father and completely fulfill the law. And we see it here in these verses. Jesus gives the command and then points to himself as the example to follow. This is one of the ways in which Christianity differs from all other religions, whose prophets and gurus point away from themselves, highlighting their teaching. And now they're dead and buried. That's all that's left, their teaching. 
Whereas Jesus points to himself, not only as our, an example, but one who through our relationship with him ever lives to enable us to live for him. So let's look at the characteristics Jesus looks for in his followers and how he is the perfect example. These are summed up, I think, in the principle of servant-heartedness. To be servant-hearted requires humility, which can mean being modest, self-effacing, considering others better than ourselves, not using any power or position we have uh, for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Being prepared to take the lowest position in order to serve others. Leadership, Jesus said, is marked by service, and whoever would be great, whoever aspires to greatness, must be your servant. This is so different from what we find in the world, where we see the desire for power, position and prestige as the all-consuming motivation in life, and where some are not averse to trampling on others to get to the top. Jesus demonstrated this principle as he faced his greatest trial. Picture there in the upper room with his disciples, knowing what he was about to face. When he might so easily have been consumed by the horror of the manner of his imminent death and the weight of sin that he would bear. And where he might have looked for support and comfort from his friends, his disciples. But his thoughts were not for himself, but for his disciples and his unending love for them. John 13, 1 to 8. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel, towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Just put that last sentence in the back of your minds for a moment. Now, put it on the black burner because I'll come back to it. If you, I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. John, the gospel writer, saw who Jesus was and how his self-awareness changed everything. He tells us that Jesus washed the disciples' feet because he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. It was his very greatness above all others that caused him to perform the lowliest task. 
bit later, Jesus prays and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What self-awareness of his uh, eternal greatness. And yet, it was not in spite of this, but because of it, he washes the disciples' feet. And then he says in verses 12 to 15, we'll read that, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. You're probably aware, and you might have participated yourself, that there are some Christian traditions um, that include washing one another's feet in a worship service or perhaps during communion. And, of course, it is just a token representing a wider principle of serving one another with the most menial tasks. In 1929, a tiny 18-year-old Albanian girl named Agnes arrived in India, motivated by her love for Jesus and the same attitude which John learned in the upper room. She visited the poor families in Calcutta slums to wash the sores of lepers, love the crippled, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, and care for those in the city that the city had discarded as unwanted refuse. She devoted the rest of her life to serving them until she died in 1977, known to the world as yeah, you all know, don't you? She attracted the world to her saviour like few others in her generation. But she told Time magazine, I don't claim any of the work. It's his work. I'm like a little pencil in his hand. That's all. He does the thinking. He does the writing. The pencil has nothing to do with it. You know, when we're um, looking for someone who might be fitted for a, a position of responsibility in the church, say a, a leader, for example, we would first, of first importance consider their character, and in particular, whether they had already, in lesser duties, exhibited a servant spirit. That's a good principle that we hold on to. And we might consider that these lesser duties to be a kind of apprenticeship, preparing them for something with more responsibility. And Jesus does indeed teach in his parables that those who are faithful in small things will be given more responsibility. But fundamentally, this is not what Jesus is saying in the verses that we, we have read. And it's only been impressed on me this as I prepare this. It never occurred to me quite this way before. He is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. No, he is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. It's not 
preparation necessarily for something higher or greater. It is of itself true greatness. Let me come back to Jesus' words to Peter at the end of the passage that we read about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And his words illustrate a vital point about God's plan of salvation. God the creator and sustainer of all things has made a way for us sinful human beings to be declared, to be declared righteous in his sight and given a place in his eternal kingdom as a gift. As a gift. If we do not receive it as a gift, but as something we have to earn, or at least add to, if, as Jesus says, we do not allow him to serve us in salvation, which is what I believe he was saying to Peter, we have no part with him, he says. And as Jesus humbled himself to serve us, we have to humble ourselves to receive his salvation. And often it's pride that keeps us from the kingdom. Remember Jesus said, if I do not wash you, if I do not serve you in salvation, you have no share with me. There's a verse in Luke where Jesus reveals a remarkable truth about God, which could so easily be missed. What do you think God will be doing in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus and his bride are united and we will be with the Lord forever. What will he be doing, do you think? Okay. Receiving our untainted worship, undoubtedly, but look at what Jesus says in the context of needing to be ready for his return. This is Jesus talking about the end times and him coming back again. He says, this is Luke 12, 35 to 38. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, and this is the key, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. This is our God. This is our servant God. He will serve us. Amazing. I don't fully understand all that, but I just think that's amazing. So returning to our theme of serving one another, Paul sums up this brilliantly in his second chapter to the letter to the Philippians. Paul, having warned the believers at Philippi that having believed in him, they, sorry, having believed in Jesus, they may have to suffer for him. He wants to encourage them and inspire them to humble servant-heartedness, using the example of Jesus. Not this time with how Jesus behaved on earth that we've been considering already, but before time, when the Father and the Son conspired to initiate the plan of salvation and the Son consented to become a human being, revealing 
the servant heart of God. So this is Philippians 2, 1 to 8. Very familiar passage. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of sinful men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Clearly, the call to servant-heartedness is to all believers. But there is a special imperative to those who would aspire to leadership because of the dangers of pride and superiority. superiority. And also the abuse, abuse of authority that sadly we have seen in the church. I don't know if you, any of you receive emails from Kevin Riley, who is with Relational Mission Church in Gdansk in Poland. It's called the Lighthouse Community. Some of you get that? Yeah, a few, okay. Um, and um, uh, if you've seen his recent, most recent newsletter, in there, there is a meditation on leadership, on Jesus' teaching on leadership from Mark's perspective. And he's entitled uh, his article, Christian Leadership on Your Knees in the Dirt. Okay, Christian Leadership on Your Knees in the Dirt. I'll just read a little bit from it. For Jesus, great leadership is epitomized in the ideas of servitude. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. This idea of ownership is at the heart of the gospel. Deity takes on flesh. A king picks up a foot tail, and so to us a son is given. Leadership begins at the bottom and stays at the bottom. To embrace to embrace a calling to lead among God's people is to embrace a lifetime of servitude. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. As leaders in the church, we become slaves to others. And if you think the slave image and the language is a bit over the top in our modern world, please note that this is how Jesus understood himself. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Our leadership is to mirror his, and his leadership was very much embedded in ideas of belonging to others and therefore dying to self. There is no place in Jesus' mind for entitlement and privilege 
with regard to Christian leadership. Jesus doesn't offer us a platform. He offers us a towel and a patch of dirt for our knees. This is literally how Jesus leads. To desire eldership and leadership is a noble thing for sure. But do understand that by choosing this life, you are choosing to come last, not first. So one last scripture to close then. This is 1 Peter 5, 5 to 9. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exhort you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. What, about, what are the anxieties? What do you think he is talking about here? I think perhaps Peter had in mind the anxiety that comes when others are promoted over you, when others are honoured and you aren't, when you are not noticed and don't receive the recognition you think you deserve. Be assured, Peter says, he cares for you and your service, your labour of love will have been noticed by the Lord and in due time, will be rewarded. In due time, he will exalt you. I'm so grateful to be part of a church that uh, so many are willing to serve for the benefit of the greater good. For As an example, um, before you arrived here today, there were many who came to set up the room, to, all, to uh, vacuum the floor, and sometimes even go to clean the toilets. Leaders, go to clean the toilets. So um, I just think that's great among us. And of course, there will be those who will help clear up afterwards. So I do sense, really, a, a serving spirit among us. Um, when I posed the question at the beginning, is there a place for ambition in the kingdom of God? Yes, indeed, is the answer but it's not like anything you might normally think of. It is first and foremost to aspire to be like Jesus. This must be our ambition in all things, to be like him. Wherever we go, what, what, whoever we meet, to spread the fragrance of being with Jesus. And uh, as I say, it's not like anything that we might normally understand. And to be content to be last, not first, as he said, this is the higher calling. You know, when I read these scriptures, um, I, my mind naturally goes back to the coronation uh, earlier last year of King Charles III. I don't know if you watched it on television, we did. Um, along with millions of people around the world. And you could not have failed to notice that at the very heart of the pomp and ceremony was, a, was the principle that the king was anointed for service. 
not for power, but for service, after the example of Jesus. Do you remember a young boy stood up and said, Your Majesty, as children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. In reply, the king says, In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. So the scripture was right at the heart uh, of that coronation. So surely, as long as we have a head of state who genuinely has the ambition to serve us, as his mother did, there is hope for our nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that as much as we want to be like your Son, our Lord Jesus, our fickle hearts still crave for recognition at times and find it hard to humble ourselves and be content with the lowly task. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit, whose work in us is to form Christ in us, to make it our ambition to please him in every way and to mani manifest his glory as we serve others. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>